Okay, but let's pray before we begin to read. Father, we do want to thank you that you allow us to humble ourselves in front of Scripture and we pray that you help us to see why it's good to do that as we study the Bible tonight because you exhort those who are humble and you draw us into your family, into your kingdom. We pray that we learn these good things with the help of your Holy Spirit and for the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Long reading, Luke chapter 16, verse 6. I meant to say Acts. (laughs) Acts chapter 16, verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customers that are not lawful for us as Lermans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison 
and fasten their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, Let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out to prison and visited Lydia and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Again, because I want to ask a question as we start. What might we want God to do if he was to impress us? Ah, people on our Beckentry estate who when we go out their doors and they say, we will believe in God if he turned up here now and impressed us that he was God. Except it doesn't work like that because the last time he did that, he was so unimpressive that we killed him on a cross. Because God, when he appeared, appeared not in a great majestic display of God. He appeared as a weak man, and we don't rate weak men. And so we wrote him off. And yet it is God's nature to choose what is foolish and weak in the world to shame the wise. And we saw that in the life of Jesus. And equally, the Apostle Paul wrote to some friends of his in a town called Corinth. You've got it on the notes. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, 1 verse 27, God chooses the weak and the foolish to shame the wise. And you see this happening in the town of Philippi tonight. Now, it takes a while for us to get there. Because um, 
uh, you see how God seems to have got himself confused, doesn't he, in verses 6 and 7? Because in chapter 1 and verse 8, Paul says, you will be witnesses to the ends of the earth. In other words, go everywhere. And now in verse 6 he says, but don't go there. And in verse 7 he says, and don't go there. Seems confusing, doesn't it? And it's strange that he says that because these are good places to go to. The Romans, let me tell you, had three provinces. And Paul wants to go to the one called Asia, which is a Roman province in Europe. Not Asia the way you know Asia. Okay, this is the Asians in Europe. So that's where they want to go, but it's out of bounds. And we're told that the Spirit stopped them in verse 6, the Spirit of Jesus in verse 7. And we think, well, okay, well, how do we get God to guide us in that way? But the whole point is we shouldn't be looking for special guidance in this way because we're not told how the guidance came. So how can we look for guidance like this if we don't know where it comes from and how it works? So that's not the lesson. The lesson is that when God says go everywhere it is true to say that he chooses the timing when people hear and Asia is kept from hearing until later Asia does get a visit later and Paul spends a year and a half planting a church in their leading city which is called Ephesus and we need to remember that when we go visiting and people are out or unable to talk to us for one reason or another, God controls who hears and when. And it's not for us to seek guidance. Ours is to go and God will order the coming and the going and where we do that. But then the call comes in verse 9 to go to another province called Macedonia. And, and, and that's uh, a province that has got three leading cities. You've got Philippi that we'll be seeing this, uh, this evening, and then Thessalonica and Berea, which we'll be seeing next week. But he gets to Philippi first, and Philippi is a leading city. It's an impressive city if you look at verse 12. It was built by a Philip, not any old Philip. This Philip happened to be the father of Alexander the Great, the great Greek conqueror. So when they gave uh, a city uh, after his father's name, it became a very great Greek city. But then the Roman Empire comes along and there is a great battle just fought just outside Philippi by a terrific uh, Roman general called Mark Antony and he fought the person who assassinated Julius Caesar. Remember Brutus? Etu Bruti? Well, Brutus was destroyed outside Philippi. Great Roman victory made that a great Roman city. All the, the army vets uh, who've left the army, settled in Philippi. That's why one of the jailers might have well been one of those uh, ex-Roman soldiers. And a Roman colony uh, 
you know how it is that the colonies turn out to be more Roman than the Romans, uh, more more Roman than Rome. Um, I grew up in one of the colonies. I know how it works like that. And I grew up, and long uh, after Britain had stopped the practice of having afternoon tea, we used to have tiffin on the front lawn served by servants with white gloves and tiny sandwiches and. All those traditions kept going long after everybody else had given them up. Because when you're in the colonies, you just end up more British than British. So it is just like that with Philippi and Rome too. <coughs> and it's an impressive city. But the people who become Christians are very unimpressive. Every morning today, every leader of a Jewish household wakes up and thanks God for three things that God did not make him a Gentile a woman or a slave and the ones that the gospel reaches in Acts 16 a woman a slave and a Gentile unimpressive and yet God goes there Lydia is mentioned first, and uh, you'll uh, see her. That's interesting, isn't it? Because it's a man of Macedonia that in invites them over, and it's a prayer meeting of women in verse 13 who first hear about Jesus. Now, you need 10 people to start a synagogue, 10 men, and there's clearly not enough men, so the women have a prayer meeting down by the river. God is choosing the weak. At least in that culture, they were weak. And contrary to the culture of that time, one of the New Testament's best churches, if you read the letter to the Philippians, you see that they are a great church. One of the best churches begins with a group of women hearing the gospel and responding. And Lydia is a person whose name is given, and she isn't even Jewish. She's called a worshipper of God in verse 14. Now, she comes from Thyatira, which did have a colony of Jews, and therefore she's heard about the God of Abraham, and now she believes and behaves like a Jew in verse 1. So because she isn't a Jew, her place in the Jewish community isn't strong, but she knows how to make money selling goods made out of purple cloth. And that's the most expensive material you can get. In other words, I guess in London you would say that she owns a shop in Savile Row in terms of being a moneymaker. But she is weak because God has to open her heart if she is going to un understand him. We saw last week that God has to do everything if he's going to save people. And he starts by opening her heart. And the mark of an open heart is that she listens to what the Paul says in verse 14. So a sign that anybody's heart is being opened by God is that we take in what the apostles tell us about Jesus which we won't do unless he opens our heart, we'll just have no interest. We'll count the tiles on the wall or do something else. 
But when the Lord opens our hearts, there is a keen listening to understand what Jesus is like. And with the open heart comes the open home, which incidentally, because of her business expertise, is big enough to contain a household of staff that she obviously has around her, but equally big enough to now take in four missionaries who happen to be staying in the area and to look after them as well. But in the process, you see that God has started his church with a place that they will be able to meet in. And you see the same open heart, open home going on in verse 34 with the Philippian jailer. God opens his heart, he opens his home, and they provide a meal for the apostle. And it's usually a mark of someone whose heart God has opened, not just that they listen, but that they then open up their homes to his people. You never know who the real Christians are by watching them rush off to church, by watching instead who comes to their home. Because at that point, you begin to see that relationships matter to them more than religion. And they open their heart and they open their home. The next person we read about is the slave girl. And in a culture where women were weak, the slave girl was worse because she didn't even own herself. She belonged to her masters for whom she told fortunes in verse 16. Now, that might have been the reason why Paul put up with her for many days in verse 18, because if she lost her livelihood, she would lose everything. And when you look closely at what's said about her, she's not actually described as evil. She didn't do evil, she did fortunes. But in the end, she did need to be stopped because she was promoting the apostles. These are men of the Most High God. She was not promoting Jesus. And verse 18, Paul proves that Jesus is the one with the authority. At the end of that, people will be talking about Jesus, not about the apostles. But at that point, you begin to see something interesting about human nature, and that is how we hide our real motives. You see that in the way that her masters react. It tells you what their real motives are in verse 19, because it tells you that they're angry, that uh, their uh, hope of gain is now gone. But do they tell people that that's the real reason? No, they don't. Because what they do is they tell them, well, the reason why we don't like these people is because, well, they are Jewish, playing to the anti-Semitism of the crowd. In verse 19, in verse 20 rather, they say, these men are Jewish. Well, that must be bad, mustn't it? See, everybody knows what the Jews are like and we don't like them. So in verse 20, he praised the crowd's anti-Semitism, and then in verse 21, he plays to their Roman pride. We are Romans. They are Jewish. Bad mark. We are Romans. Good mark. Therefore, we don't want to do anything that is inconsistent with our culture. And so they don't tell you the real reasons why they don't like Paul and Silas, they tell you the reasons that the crowd would like to hear, would they then get the crowd against Paul and Silas, but on their side. 
just like people today don't tell you the real reasons why they don't like Christians, they give you other reasons that they think other people will hate you for instead. So if there's a person in the office and he meets somebody who claims to be a Christian but he happens to be living with his girlfriend and he asks, how does that work out that you claim to be a Christian and, uh, and yet live with your girlfriend? And there is a great amount of anger against this Christian for exposing the hypocrisy. But what does he go and tell the office? Well, these Christians, they hate gay people. And everybody knows that it's politically incorrect to have a view like that. And so everybody says, how dare they tell other people how they should live. And a great Ferrari ensues. And it's not the real reason. It's the reason why it plays well with the crowd to put this reason instead. And so generally Christians are attacked uh, for what just isn't true but people don't like them because of what they are, uh, what's exposed in their heart and in their greed in this case. And so you get the deceptive heart and the false reasons. But then you get the third person uh, who happens to be the jailer, but actually I'm going to include the jailed with him. Because the jailed are the ones who see the greatness and the goodness of God in the prison. The jailed see it first, or they hear of the goodness of God in the singing of verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Years later the Apostle Paul would write a letter to these Philippians and he would say to them, you've got the reference in your notes, Philippians chapter 4 verses 4 to 7, where Paul actually says, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God and the peace of God will pass on, that passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God. Now that was something that actually he learnt when he was in this prison. And if it works in a prison in those conditions, my friend, we can take what Paul says and apply it to our lives. It'll work there as well. And the prisoners are listening to the goodness of God. Now don't join the union on their behalf and say that they can't get a good night's sleep with all that racket going on because it is really like in their wakefulness in the discomfort of prison they have a distraction from their suffering it seems like a new music system has been installed and they hear this great encouragement of what God is like and sing Christians do because however bad people are against them, however bad circumstances might be against them, it does never compromise the great goodness and loving kindness and joy that we have in the love of God. Nothing separates us from that. 
A friend of mine has cancer, many of you know him, David Plale, and he sends a text message out to uh, all his friends after the latest scan results have come in, and usually the scan results are not that good. There's a new lump here or another lump that's grown over there, larger than it was the last time, and yet he speaks of God's goodness to him in those texts. It's the equivalent of hearing Paul and Silas sing. And the way Christians handle their suffering is something that makes heads turn, people watch, and they hear silent sermons come out of our lives about the goodness of God, which is what happens in verse 25. And then you get the earthquake that follows in verse 26. Now, let me tell you, the earthquake isn't necessary to set Paul and Silas free because the police are going to come the next day and do that for them. The point of the earthquake is to bring the jailer and his household to be saved because that's what happens at the end of it. Now, again, you might have think, thought that the, uh, God could have got his timing slightly better. If, it, if the earthquake had happened at the end of verse 21, just think, it would have saved Paul and Silas getting beaten. And it would have meant that all the magistrates and the crowds and a far greater number of people would have heard and more impressive people would have seen the greatness of God on that occasion. But again, you see, it's not the slave owners and magistrates to see God's love. It's the jailer and the jailed. And when the magistrates send their police force the next morning and they're told that they're not coming, they learn nothing about what happened the previous night what happened in the jail stays in jail. And yet, it's this place where the early church would have seen the goodness of God, the greatness of God, and where it would have grown here as God chooses the weak to shame the strong. And the strong are shamed the next day, aren't they, in verse 39? And it may be that Paul sends them away and gets the people to come to apologize because in this way he'll protect the Christians who remain in the city after they leave. Because in doing that Paul is making the point that it is not anti-Roman to be Christian. He is a Roman, he is a Christian and therefore don't touch the Christians saying that they are anti-Rome. And then he leaves. But yet the church continues and later gets this wonderful letter to show what a great church it is. You might think, well, how did it happen like that when he was there for such a short time? I want to point out to you, if you look at this closely, that you see again and again the, this little phrase, after many days. I want to suggest that the stay in Philippi was much longer than just a quick week's tour of three people. And so relationships have been built up more than just in five minutes. But another reason why I think the church is there and grown is because it seems that Luke stayed behind, I suppose you could say, as his pastor. Can you see why it says that in the text? 
Ah, we've got to look closely, haven't you? Because if you look at verse 8, you see that when Luke describes, chapter 16, verse 8, when Luke describes uh, Paul and Silas and those with them, he talks about they. When they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to get into Bithynia. So Luke's not obviously part of this party because he refers to them as they. But then you look at verse 10, and now Luke is in the party because when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. Remember, Luke's the one writing this. And he's saying, we went there. His part of the group. And you can see that Luke is in Macedonia, sorry, in Philippi, because if you verse, verse 16, you see, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by the slave girl. And she followed Paul and us. Luke is part of that little group. But then when you see them leave in verse 40, Luke isn't going to leave with them because it says they left, they departed. And what they did was they departed to Thessalonica and then Berea. And when they do the return trip and they come back to Philippi, Luke pops up again in Luke chapter 20, verses 5 and 6. And you see that uh, Luke says, These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Trias. That's where the us language starts up again. But we sailed away from Philippi. Philippi is Luke's hometown. And he's been staying there all the time while the others have gone, <coughs> caring for the church. Now Luke is a doctor, which means it's a good job that he was there in Philippi at the time, given that Paul and Silas had been beaten up so badly. Paul later refers to Luke as his beloved physician. Could be that because actually this is where he discovered what a great physician Luke was. So it isn't true to say that God only calls the weak people of this world, because Luke obviously is a person who'd be recognized, who was impressive. But before it says, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, that God does not choose, that God chooses the wise, the foolish, and the weak, the verse before that says, not many of you were wise, not many of you were powerful. In other words, some were. There are some Christians who have got stature and uh, uh, an important role. But not many. Most are regarded as foolish or weak because God chooses the weak things of this world, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 27, to shame the wise. So what does that teach us? I want to suggest that if you aren't Christian here, there's a good chance you'd have heard Christians criticized for one thing and another, and it's worth, I think, seeing that there is usually a hidden agenda for the critics, just like it was for the slave owners who weren't really going to tell you the grubby reasons why they didn't like Christians when their hope of gain was gone. And it may be that... Um, Therefore, it looks like uh, Christians are uh, bad. It may be that actually the Christians you know are weak and unimpressive people. I think that's the reason I was put off when I was first looking at Christianity. 
all the Christians I knew were wet. And I didn't want to be like them. That was true until one day I went on a holiday with one of the wet guys, who was also called David as it happened, and we went for a walking holiday in the Lake District because he certainly knew how to walk, and therefore when we went walking, um, I kindly asked him to take the, the heaviest rucksack uh, until we'd eaten our lunch, and then I'd take it over. And I would do that because he could he just had the physic of an ox, it turned out, and I was on 20 a day in those days, and my fitness wasn't as uh, great as his, so he carried all the bark of it, and when we got back to our tent before it was dinner time, we could go to the pub and eat something. We used to have rough and tumble games in the tent, and he would eat an apple with one hand and subdue me with the other. <laughs> and I suddenly realized the Christians weren't as weak as I thought they were, and as time went on and I saw my own character exposed in the light of the gospel, I realized I was much weaker than I thought I was. Because God chooses the weak, and he showed me in time how I was weak. And for those, if they include you, think you are weak. Verse 31 is gold, isn't it? We don't need to be strong. We don't need to perform. We just look to the Lord Jesus to save us. So the key ultimately is not whether you are a weak person or a strong person, but whether you are a humble person who recognizes that you just simply cannot save yourself and get yourself into a real relationship with God. You've got to ask him to save you and to do it for you. And if you have no relationship with God that is worth having, then this is something that would be good for you to go home and ask God to do for you too. God chooses the weak things of the world. What happens if you're a person who's uh, someone who's part of the Christian scene, you've gone to many, many church services? It's good, isn't it, through this passage to see that the mark of an open heart is actually an open home and a desire to love other believers with hospitality and kindness. Now, look, not everyone has a home. Uh, the slave girl didn't have a home. She would probably have needed Lydia to take her into her home. But generally, where possible, it is the mark of real believers when the open heart leads to an open home. And I would suggest if you've been to church lots and you're able to offer hospitality, well, it may be that it's worth using the openness of your home to check the openness of your heart. It's a good indicator and a reveal of what the heart is like. But if you are a real believer, I think the take home for us is to see how God chooses the weak. So, it is easy, isn't it, for us to feel embarrassed, the church is too small, the leaders are too amateur, the people are too unimpressive. But can you see that when God chooses the weak, what that's really telling you is that God chooses to love 
rather than to impress. That is what is impressive about the God of the Bible. That in the company that he chooses, he shows something unique about him. That he chooses the weak and the foolish. And he chooses to love, not to go for impressive in order to impress. And therefore, for those of us who follow him, then like Saul, uh, Paul and Silas, our great privilege is to love those the world would consider to be weak and foolish. So find a home in our company and a welcome amongst God's people. That's what the rejects of Acts chapter 16 found and it is what those in our state would love to discover as well. Let's pray that God will change us to be like him in this regard. Let's have a moment of silent prayer. Then I'll pray. Then we'll do some questions and answers after that. Let's have a moment of quiet first. And ask yourself, what does God want you to learn from tonight? What is God saying to you through this passage? Quiet and think. Father, we do want to thank you that you are a gracious God who loves rather than seeks to impress. Thank you that you therefore are impressive in choosing to love the weak and the foolish. We thank you that we have such a God that in our weakness we turn to him and ask you to save us. And we cry out to you, Father, that you would please demonstrate the mark of your salvation in our church. Help us to be those who are open-hearted, who want to listen only to the apostles and what they say about Jesus. Help us to be open-hearted, warmly hospitable and caring for others in a relational rather than a religious way. And help us, Father, we pray, to be like the God who loves the weak and the foolish, that we may care for and strengthen those who the world might regard weak and foolish, but are yet nonetheless loved by you. Give us, we pray, the great privilege of resembling you in this way. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.